Dear congregation, if we love the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, then certainly some of the most encouraging words in the New Testament are found within the context of a familiar passage that I trust that we are quite familiar with, and that is the Caesarea Philippi Confession of uh, the Apostle Peter before the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ had asked the disciples, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? They gave a response, and then Jesus bore down a little deeper, and He looked at them very particularly at the apostles and said, but who do you say that I am? And Peter, speaking on behalf of them all, said, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Beautiful confession. And then Christ responded, you remember famously, by saying that the awareness of that truth, that Jesus Christ is divine, that He's the Son of the living God, is not rooted in human awareness alone, uh, but rather He said, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. Humans didn't reveal that to Peter. Peter didn't reveal that to himself. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. But, he says, my Father in heaven. And then Jesus continued with those very encouraging and oft-quoted words, and I say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Hundreds of thousands of Christians not only commit that statement to memory, but find tremendous comfort in those words of Christ. I, the King of kings, will, an absolute affirmation, build, will strengthen and build and make sure my, His church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. God did that in the early New Testament time. God has done that and been at work doing that ever since that famed Caesarea Philippi confession of the Apostle Peter and and Christ's interaction with him. And God in Christ has been doing and fulfilling that promise ever since. He has been building His church. The gates of hell have been been confronting uh, Christ's building work. There's, There's so much sorrow. There's so much division. There's so much that comes up against Christ's work. But the work marches on steadily forward, sometimes in large numbers, sometimes in small numbers. But what Christ has said will be fulfilled, has been fulfilled since then, and it will be fulfilled to the end of the age. I will build my church. And so as God does that, as Christ does that, The New Testament church is a gathering, of course, of people. We call this building a church. We call it a church because of those who gather within it. People gather together, and we know that's the church of God. But the all-important question follows from that, what is a church supposed to do? What is a faithful New Testament church? How does a new che- faithful New Te- Testament church function? Well, today 
We want to look at this evening, we want to look at this very familiar passage that we read together from Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. And we want to see how this newly formed New Testament church functioned and how really that this is a template, a, a pattern for a faithful New Testament church today. This doesn't fill us in in all of the sub-details, if you will, of what a, a faithful New Testament church is called to do, but these listed in these verses here in Acts chapter 2, 42 through 47, are the basics, are the non-negotiables of a faithful New Testament church. And that's our theme, as you find it as well in the bulletin, very simply, a faithful New Testament church. And so what does a Bible-believing Christian church look like? What does a faithful church practice, both as a body and as individual members that make up that body? That question you may well know, has been asked a hundred thousand times in history by a hundred thousand people, and it seems that there's a hundred thousand different answers for that question. Some say, well, just believe and practice what feels right for you. After all, what feels right for you must be right, and if it feels best for you, well, then go for it and go for it with gusto. Others say, well, just do what works best for you. Takes the practical approach and say, if this works and better than, than something else, and well, if it conflicts with something in, in the Word of God, well, Maybe there was a few old-fashioned things in the Word of God after all. This was 2,000 years ago. And so some say, well, just do what, what works best for you. Still others say, well, just kind of do what, what profits you most. Some use the business model. What, what profits you most financially? Others look at it a little broader and say, well, do what profits you, you most emotionally. What, what really hits the heart of, of that particular crowd, the particular group of people, you, you find what profits them the most, and you, you engage in that. Well, of course, you, you well know that all of these things are man-centered at heart. The question that we have to be asking is, what is the right thing to do? What is the biblical thing to do? What does a faithful, God-honoring, Bible-believing New Testament church practice? The Bible is crystal clear on this. This morning we spoke together with young people and considering how to read the Bible with profit, how to interpret the Bible with profit, and we and just briefly touched on the fact that there's uh, some parts of Scripture that are a little more difficult than others, and great swaths of Scripture, of course, that are, are crystal clear. And those parts that are a little more difficult have to be interpreted in light of those things that are crystal clear. But certainly, uh, those things that are crystal clear in Scripture is that which God requires of his people who profess His name, who gather from Lord's Day to Lord's Day in His house, round His Word, are called to do repetitively and are non-negotiable. Our core elements, essential elements of a New Testament church. And so let's go through those from this passage that we read together from Acts chapter 2. We find some seven of them listed here in this particular passage. And the first one is 
A faithful New Testament church continues steadfastly in the apostles' teaching. Or we could also say continues steadfastly in biblical doctrine. Teaching and doctrine, Bible teaching and doctrine, in one sense it's synonymous uh, with each other. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. Now, the faithful church has always understood that this is a foundational, and I would dare say the, the, the very starting block, foundational element of a New Testament church. John Calvin famously said uh, that the purity of doctrine is the heart and the soul of a church. Martin Luther, he said, doctrine rightly understood, he says, is heaven. It is everything within the church. Paul preached doctrine. He wrote to to Titus in chapter 2 and verse 1, and he says, Speak thou the things which become sound doctrine. Jesus, in His famous Sermon on the Mount, He preached it, didn't He? Recorded in Matthew 5 and 6 and 7. And what do we read at the conclusion of that sermon? That many were astonished, Matthew 7 and verse 28, at His doctrine, for He taught as one having authority. It is the teaching of doctrine even for, for Christ Himself that added to the authority of the message that He brought. And there were those who, who heard that, took note of that, perked up their ears about that. Here we are told that the faithful church continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. This is first and foremost. This is foundational. This is central. Well, what is doctrine? Well, doctrine, very simply, is is religious teaching. It is the core elements of salvation, the core truths of the Bible. You know, there are some people today who say, well, we don't teach doctrine. We don't believe in doctrine. Doctrine divides. I still remember walking into one church, a rented facility, uh, many, many years ago, and rounding the corner just before coming into the sanctuary, this was a tiny little plaque on the wall and caught my eye, and I I quickly read it, and it actually stopped me in my tracks before walking up to the pulpit and says, we don't teach doctrine here, we just teach the Bible. And it just grieved me at my heart to to read that, because the Bible itself speaks about doctrine over 50 times. And it just underlines the incredible ignorance of so many That doctrine is a thing that bubbles out of Scripture, that is foundational in Scripture. It's the core of Scripture. And here we are told that they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. And we ask, what is that? Well, the simple answer is very simply this. That is the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. The message of Christ alone. The apostles didn't dream up a message, the New Testament apostles. They didn't say, you know, this is what we believe and therefore we make it ours and we put our name on it and therefore we'll call it the apostles' doctrine and and, and off we go. This forms the New Testament church. No, not at all. In the New Testament, we are told in Acts chapter 1 and verse 21 that one of the requirements of an apostle is that they had to spend uh, their entire ministry or spend the, their, their time with the entire ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ with him all those three years. And so an apostle would have been one 
who sat with and walked with and talked with the Lord Jesus Christ during his three years of ministry. And of course, when we look at the faithful New Testament apostles, Paul and Peter and John and all the rest, well, what are they doing? They're simply going on, aren't they? And, and they're, they're speaking the truths of Christ in their ministries. So doctrine, the doctrine they continued in here in Acts chapter 2 is the teachings of the Word of God as they were taught by Jesus Himself. Now this is very, very critical if you think about it. Because there is a lot of teaching going on in many religious and cultural settings that may be moral teaching, that may be helpful teaching, that can be helpful for marriages and finances and practical stuff, relational issues throughout the week. All that may be good at, on a certain level, but it can be vacant of Christ-centeredness. It can be vacant of Christology. And if you read through New Testament letters, you find very quickly, don't you, that the apostles, as they taught their doctrine, was anything but lacking Christology within it. It was Christ-focused. It was Christ-founded. The apostle Paul said, but we preach Christ crucified. He was focused on Christ. He was resting on Christ. He, he found everything in Christ. And, and John is the same and Peter is the same. And if we would be a faithful church and faithful church members, we must also continue in Christian, decidedly Christian doctrine. But to bore down just a little deeper and we ask ourselves, but why is... Why is Christian doctrine, why is that so important? Well, there's many, many reasons, but let me give you just, just a couple. First of all, when we consider Christian doctrine rightly, properly, as a faithful church, a faithful Protestant church throughout history has always understood it, it ought to, and by the Spirit's blessing, cultivate within the believing soul a greater appreciation and a higher worship for God Himself. Think only of the grand and glorious doctrine of redemption, particularly of justification, how a sinner is made right with God, the doctrine of salvation, if you will. Think of that, that wonderful truth how that you and I, who are totally depraved sinners, we have no right to heaven, we have no right to salvation, we have no rights to anything of ourselves, but God sent His Son in the fullness of time to be born under the law, to redeem those sinners like you and I who are under the law and under the, the judgments of the law and deserve, rightly deserve, to be punished in everlasting hell for sins committed against that law. But He sent His Son, didn't He, to fulfill that law, to live according to that law all the days of His life, and to die being punished for the sins that you and I committed against that same law. And then to take His righteousness and to transfer it fully to the sinner, and a sinner receiving it by faith, and He taking all our guilt upon Him, bearing it on the cross. And so when you rightly consider the doctrine of justification, that, that Christ's righteousness becomes ours, and His sin, our sin rather, is transferred to Him. And the Spirit blesses the awareness and the understanding of that doctrine to our hearts and souls. Well, you stand in awe before God and you say, why, Lord? How, Lord? Well, we say, yes, Jesus Christ. But 
You see, doctrine rightly considered, friends, just doesn't fill our minds and hearts, or our minds rather, with facts. It fills our hearts with worship. Doctrine leads to doxology, as Calvin used to say. Luther again said, doctrine is heaven. It is everything. Sometimes it, it may seem like dry, boring facts, but we have to read these truths and meditate over these truths and, and do what the Puritans told us to do. Pick up the Bible to inform you and do not lay it down until it inflames you. Let it soak into your soul. Pray the Spirit's blessing to, to make it alive in your heart and soul so you would love the God who gives us this doctrine on the sacred page. It's important to continue steadfastly in the Apostles' doctrine. But then secondly, uh, we ought to consider doctrine so that we would be able to defend God's Word in the marketplace or in our interpersonal relationships, those whom we may work with or, or deal with in, in business relationships. Doesn't Peter write in 1 Peter 3 and verse 15 to always be ready to give a defense of the faith, an answer to the faith to those who ask it of you? It equips us to evangelize, to speak God's Word. How many times is it not true that we've, we've heard people say this and say that and they've talked about the Bible this way and we, we kind of shrink back and because, well, we, we don't really feel armed well enough to engage in conversation with them. And, and, well, maybe we didn't let our light so shine before men that they would see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. And, and we didn't do that because we, we didn't pay much, much enough attention to the doctrine of, of the Bible. Well, we don't all have to be have PhDs and be doctrinal theologians. But young people, focus on doctrine. Study doctrine. Make it your, your, your intention and your, your prayerful pursuit to learn your catechism well and to pray that the God of Scripture would be your God and your Savior and that you would understand it clearly and be able to promote it and defend it against error. And then note, too, that they continued steadfastly in the Apostles' doctrine. It means not, not wavering. That's one reason, of course, why we read the Apostles' Creed uh, each Sunday. A summary doctrines of, of the church. That's one reason why many faithful churches still continue, uh, rightly so, to, to preach from our, our Heidelberg Catechism and, and other wonderful uh, summary documents of the faith. We do well to remember that many today as well, they scoff at the idea of doctrine in the name, as I mentioned before, of, of biblical purity. You say, well, we don't preach doctrine, we just uh, preach the Bible. Paul wrote to his spiritual son Timothy in 1 Timothy 1 and verse 10, the time will come when he says, when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, they will... Because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside uh, to fables and as to stories. Be watchful in all these things, he says, and fulfill your ministry. That happens all the time, doesn't it? People don't want to hear doctrine. They don't want to hear the core truths of the Bible, and they give excuses like this. Well, doctrine just divides people, so just tell us stories. Paul says those days are coming. In a certain way, they were there in the apostles' time, and, 
If that was true 2,000 years ago, well, it's true today as well. Sound doctrine is important. It impacts everything and every practice of every single church event as well. It affects the content of sermons. It affects the music in church. It affects our view of Scripture. It affects how we spend the Lord's Day. Our understanding of mankind, of sin, of Christ. How we're saved. You see, our our view of doctrine affects every single belief that we have. And that's why we find it listed here at the top of the list of a faithful New Testament church that they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. Always remember this, that this is foundational and never, ever let this go. But verse 42 continues, doesn't it? And says that they also continued steadfastly in fellowship. In fellowship. Well, what, what is that? Well, fellowship, of course, is, is talking to one another, communicating back and forth with others, having heart-to-heart conversations with one another about encouraging truths. How many times don't we read in the New Testament that we are called to, to edify one another? That word edify means to, to strengthen one another. You talk about a wall, another word for it is an edifice. When God says that we are to edify one another, He means strengthen one another, to be strong for one another and to, to strengthen and to encourage one another. We ought to talk with one another openly and pray for opportunities to do so, to speak about important spiritual things. Not that every discussion needs to be a, a theological discussion, an in-depth theological discussion. But just like our common conversation ought to be framed by the Word of God, ought to be founded upon the Word of God, the truths of the Word of God. They shared, we are told here, in this personal fellowship. It doesn't mean, of course, that Uh, The deepest secrets of everyone's heart becomes everyone else's business? No, that's that's not it. But we have to ask ourselves, is there in my life as well, in your life, is there a measure of fellowship, of close fellowship that we have with one another? After all, we, we confess every Sunday, I believe in the communion of saints. You know, it's a sad day when those who are within the church have as their closest friends those who are not Christian. It's wonderful to have non-Christians as friends, but it's a sad day when your closest friends, those whom you bear your soul with, those whom you spend time with, those whom you talk with heart to heart, do not share in the heart of the Lord Jesus Christ. But it's a wonderful thing when we may fellowship one with another. John says this in 1 John, 1 in verse 6, if we say that we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. This is the common trait, an honorable trait. A necessary trait, a necessary practice for a faithful New Testament church. Fellowship with one another. Those famous words, those well-known words in Malachi 3 and verse 16, uh, bear repeating as well, and they that feared the Lord spoke often one with another, and the Lord hearkened, we are told, and heard it. God, as it were, bends down His ear from heaven and listens to His saints as we speak about His ways and His Word, His admonishments, His goodness, His faithfulness, His mercies, His patience, His guidance, His encouragements. 
We may have a two-way conversation, but there's always a third one, the Bible says, listening, and that's God Himself. He pays particular attention. Malachi even goes on to say that God's writing it down in a book, physically, of course, but to show us that this is something that God records, and it's important for Him. It's important for Him. It ought to be very, very important for us as well. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship. Paul, when he greeted the Philippians, said in chapter 1, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always and in every prayer of mine for you, making requests with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. Paul, he met the Philippians. They had immediate fellowship. They had fellowship all the way through, and it was continual, just like we find here in Acts chapter 2. Continual fellowship, not just occasional, but continual. Third, a faithful New Testament church rightly practices the sacraments. Look at verse 42. And in breaking of bread. This is a reference to uh, the Lord's Supper, the breaking of bread. A faithful, well ordered New Testament church properly administers the sacraments. It's important not only for a consistory, of course, to, to organize such and for it to be rightly administered uh, by an ordained pastor, but for a faithful church to partake of and to rightly understand and to appreciate as well, to properly value. And there's such a danger when we think of those two New Testament sacraments, both the Lord's Supper and baptism, to stray in either direction, either of overvaluing them or undervaluing them. They must not be overvalued. We don't look at the Lord's Supper or baptism and say, well, those who are baptized those who partake somehow mystically and wonderfully receive some of God's grace mysteriously in them, in the partaking of them themselves. Well, that's, that's holy Roman Catholic. They, they have this view of, of the sacrament being the vehicle that delivers for simplicity's sake, the vehicle that delivers God's grace to the soul. The Bible is clear that these things, these sacraments, are a sign, first of all, that is a picture of grace and a seal, a confirmation of what He has done and what He continues to do. They are not salvation in and of themselves. And so, there's a danger in overvaluing the sacraments. But then, the the flip side of that is that Christians can also be in danger of undervaluing the sacraments. Some look at baptism in the Lord's Supper and say, well, since they actually don't save you, are they really that important? After all, there's no salvific value in the water. There's no salvific value in the bread and the wine itself. Some will even go as far to say, well, if you debate the, uh, debate the, the sacraments like Luther and Melanchthon debated the sacrament, the presence of Christ in the Lord's Supper. All you end up with is a church split in the end. And it's true, the first split in Protestantism came over the Lord's Supper. Or they look at examples in the Bible and say, well, the thief on the cross, he wasn't baptized 
He didn't take the Lord's Supper, and he still ended up in paradise. That's the exception. That's not the norm. A faithful New Testament church rightly values and rightly practices the sacrament. Many of our church fathers, of course, noted that one of the marks of a true church was to properly administer the sacraments. And when they are properly administered, Christians here know as well that they can be a tremendous comfort for the heart and soul. It's wonderful to receive the, the gospel, hear the gospel. God blesses the gospel to the heart and soul. But it's also a, a tremendous blessing when we may be in church, we may witness baptism, we may partake of the Lord's Supper, and faith can be strengthened. Don't we find it articulated so beautifully in the Belgian Confession of Faith, Article 33? We believe that our gracious God, on the account of the weakness of our faith, has instituted the sacraments. God says, I know how weak your faith is, dear Christian. I will give you something more than you can just hear with the ear. I will give you something that you can feel with all the other four senses as well. You see, he comes so low. He stoops so low and comes so near to us in the sacraments. One Puritan says in the preaching, he embraces us, but in the sacraments, he kisses us. A faithful New Testament church properly engages in the sacraments. Verse 42 goes on to to mark the fourth characteristic of a faithful New Testament church. They continued also in prayers. Now, of course, books have been written on this very important subject of prayer. Prayer is so important. Prayer is part, as we heard this morning, young people, of our communication with God. God communicates to us in His Word, and we communicate back to Him in prayer. John Flavel said that that which doesn't begin in prayer seldom ends in blessing. Prayer has to begin at home. Has to be modeled by, by parents, godly parents who, who pray, who pray for, and who pray with their children. And when they see that, when they hear that, they pick up on the need, don't they? Just like sponges for the, the great need to pray. Another Puritan said this, a beautiful quote, I think. A true prayer is the breath of the soul. That's true. It's not a scriptural citation, but it's true. And if that's true, I ask us tonight, I ask myself, how well are we breathing? Are we breathing at all? Are we just gasping for breath every once in a while? Are we breathing regularly? Are we pouring out our souls to God in prayer? It's the, it's the breath of the soul. It needs to begin in our homes, and then it carries naturally into the church. You can't have a, a prayerful church if you don't have prayerful homes. Someone once cataloged that in Scripture there are around 500 exhortations and examples of prayer. But perhaps Paul said it best in 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 7 when he said very simply, pray without ceasing. Never give up on God. Satan wants you to give up on God. Sometimes you and I want to give up on God. We want to see immediate results and when we don't get what we want right now, we're, we're like a, a discontented little child and we say, well, then I'm not going to continue it. Well, we may not say it exactly like that, but we, we just don't do it. 
The Bible doesn't allow us to do that. The, the guidance of Scripture says here that they continued steadfastly in prayers, corporate prayers, personal prayers, prayer meetings. Prayer is so important to the church. Moving forward and onward, verse 44, we read that a faithful New Testament church also engages in mutual care. Look at verse 44, and all that believed were together and had all things common. Verse 45, they sold their possessions and goods, parted them to all men as every man had need. What is this teaching here? Well, it's not teaching some form of socialism that we all have to have exactly the same size of pie slice as our neighbor. Uh, That, well, he has more than me and he therefore owes me a little bit so that my slice is as big as his. That's, That's not what this is teaching at all. But the sense here is that some sold of their belongings and gave to others in need because they cared for one another. They cared for one another. There was a a unified love and compassion in the early New Testament church. You see, when God comes into our lives and and He becomes the most important, this is the way it it naturally goes and, and ought to rightly, ideally continue in that that me and my stuff and my interests, they, they, take a second, they, they take a second seat, if you will. It's not the most important. But caring for my neighbor, that becomes priority. And we find it is better to give than to receive. A faithful New Testament church cares for one another. And here the Bible really is waxing very practical, isn't it? And we do that when we're faithful and honoring the Lord in, in very simple ways. It can be a text message, can be a phone call, can be a can be a, a pot of soup. Helping someone financially who's who's fallen on hard times. A faithful church sincerely cares for one another. Someone once said with all the things that we have, we have a lot to offer. But then the, the writer asked this question, but are we possessed by our possessions? I find that a very, very intriguing a question. Are we possessed by our possessions? You see, if we're possessed, if we're controlled by what we have, We won't want to spend our money, our time, our talents, our resources, our abilities on our fellow man. But if we have this sense of mutual care, we listen to what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 23, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful to me, but not all things edify. Let no one seek his own, but each one also the other's well-being. Here, the new faithful New Testament church, they practice this loving Christian mutual care. I think at the end of the day, this is really found in the very principle, in the principle of that which Jesus Christ did on the cross. His love was expressed in what? In salvation, yes, but His and the Father's love was expressed in giving. That text that is so often quoted, sometimes we we miss that which is right on the surface. John 3 and verse 16, God so loved the world that He what? He gave, He gave His only begotten Son. His love, His care, is shown through giving. A Christian's love of Christ is shown 
through mutual care. As this faithful New Testament church here in Acts flourishes and is blessed by God. Sixth, a faithful New Testament church, verse 46, worships, worships, and they continued daily with one accord in the temple. The New Testament church, they went every day to church. Could you imagine that? Every day to church. It must have worked at some points, of course, but they continued steadfastly, regularly, continued daily with one accord in the temple. They regularly worshiped together. Do you know how many hours there are in a week? Maybe some of you bright young minds know that. There's 168 hours in a week. You know, a, a couple hours of that that equates to is somewhere in the neighborhood of 1%. And for the vast majority of Americans, Europeans for that matter, people in the world, even 1% is too much, is an inconvenience. Even for some evangelical professing Christians, 1% of a week is too much to give to God. We need to go and reread these basic passages and ask ourselves, are we giving our all? Are we giving our heart to God? America, the churches in America desperately needs to recapture the spirit of the early New Testament church. J.C. Penney, uh, the founder of uh, the, the, the store, the chain store that's, that's named after him, he famously once said, and I quote, if you are too busy to attend church on Sunday and Wednesday night prayer meeting, you are doing more than God wants you to do. It's not Scripture, but it's wise. It's the spirit of the New Testament church. We need to attend faithfully. Of course, only being legitimate for, for absent, uh, absent for legitimate reasons. If we don't, the next generation will be even less faithful. You know, oftentimes we, we turn to the, the familiar passages in the Bible, don't we? We look at passages like Hebrews chapter 10, beginning at verse 23, uh, regarding this, this matter of worship in the house of God on Sunday. We read these words, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, encouraging words. For he who has promised is faithful, God is faithful, verse 24, and let us consider one, in, uh, one another in order to stir up love and good works. This is what a, a church ought to do, and, and the writer to the Hebrews is, is leading up to something here, and we, we often quote verse 25, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much more as we see the day approaching. And so the writer is, is boring down and says, Jesus is coming back. Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Do all these other positive things. Encourage one another, stirring each other up to good works. Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Jesus is coming back. And a lot of times we put a period there and we stop there. But verse 26 continues on with the line with these words, for, for, if we sin willfully after we have received knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain and fearful expectation of judgment. Those are terrifying words. That's divine judgment. So why do we come to church? Well, we have to come to church because this is what God calls us to do. We have to come to church because we desire to be in church. 
We ought to come to church because our, our hearts are echoing uh, what Psalm 122 says. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of God. That we delight in worship. But we also go to church because we don't want God's judgment upon us. Either in this life or the next. These are sobering things, friends. Not to be taken lightly. In a faithful New Testament church, you see, Here's God speaking to us through His Word and says, Lord, help me to be faithful. Worshiping. But what is the general atmosphere that we find in kind of sprinkled through this, this passage here? Well, verse 43, uh, there, was, there was fear. There was fear upon them. And fear came upon every soul. The, the fear uh, referred to here is more than likely uh, the, the fear of the Lord that uh, the Apostle Paul so often refers to in his uh, letters. The fear of the Lord, very simply put, is a, is a combination of awe, of reverence, and of worship and faith, a mingling of these things, coming before God, recognizing that He is the great God of heaven with whom we have to do that we are not equals with Him, but we are created by Him. We are created for His glory. And so, the hearts of the New Testament church, they had the fear of God in their hearts. And a faithful New Testament church member today doesn't come casually in the presence of God, but recognizes that God is everything and fears the Lord accordingly. Verse 46, they came with one accord. One accord. They gathered with one accord. What does that mean? Well, it's just another word for unity, isn't it? It's a beautiful thing when you have unity. Your consistory just noted that you, you are blessed with unity. It's a, it's a beautiful thing to have unity. Pray that it continues. Pray that there would be no divisions about major things among you, that that unity may continue because it is there where God commonly blesses. One of the most wonderful passages in Scripture we find in the book of Psalms, Psalm 133, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It's like the precious ointment upon the head that ran down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard that went down to the skirts of his garments, as the dew of Hermon, as the dew that descended upon the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, even life forevermore. Notice that. For there the Lord commanded the blessing. Where's the there? Is that on Aaron's beard? Or is it on the... Uh, the, the the, the, the mountains of the Mount Hermon? No. The there is where there is unity. There the Lord commands His blessing. He doesn't just hope for His blessing. God from heaven says, this is where I will bless my people. Where, by the grace of God, there is unity. That's a wonderful, wonderful thing. And so listen to the Apostle Paul when he writes, endeavor to keep the unity, work on keeping the unity, the Spirit in the bond of peace. Satan will do everything he can to fracture that, to break that. Here the faithful New Testament church, they continued with one accord. Recognize the important issues of the faith, and focus on those. Focus on the, the most important one within the faith that is Jesus Christ, and that will go a long ways toward unity. They continued with one accord. And then in verse 46, we read also that there was gladness. There was gladness. It's not a, a flippant, shallow happiness talking about insignificant things that, that make us happy, but 
happiness and joy in scriptural matters. There's joy, the Bible tells us, in the Holy Ghost. There's joy in the work of the Holy Spirit. There is joy in God. I have come, Jesus says, that you may have joy and that your joy may be full. Another element to that worship, to the gathering of the saints together, was the simplicity, was the singleness of heart. The simplicity of heart. This is very likely a reference uh, to the fact that they didn't get all bogged down in all the, the micro minutiae of theology, superlapsarian and ism and infralapsarianism, and there's time and place for all of these, all of these discussions, all of these debates. But focus on the big things. Focus on Christ. Focus on why Christ came to seek and to save the lost. They, they worship the Lord with simplicity, with singleness of heart. And then again in verse 47, with sincere joy. Paul exhorts us in Ephesians 5 to sing and to make melody in our heart to the Lord. And finally, a faithful New Testament church also appears in this passage to engage in evangelism. Engage in evangelism. You find that at least implied in verse 46. They broke bread from house to house. Now, there are some that read that and they say, well, this is just a, a rephrasing of that which Luke wrote before, earlier, just a few verses before of the reference to the the breaking of bread, but most agree that this is not just a a restatement of the idea of having the Lord's Supper and speaking about the sacraments again, but also in the the original language there seems to be an emphasis on uh, the, the, the key words here, from house to house, breaking bread from house to house. And if you stop and think of it, this is the common New Testament pattern of how the gospel of hope was shared from house to house with others, and even particularly around a meal together. More broadly, Paul was persecuting the church, we read in in Acts chapter 8, but the church Everyone, men and women, they went everywhere preaching, that is, evangelizing the Word. Acts chapter 8, they went from house to house. Acts chapter 20, in verse 20, Paul, he said to the Ephesians, I kept nothing back from you that was profitable to you, but I have showed you and have taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying both to the Jews and to the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And so too, God in His Word, He calls us to share the Word of the Lord with others in opportunities that come our way. And what a more fitting opportunity we have is when we can do that over meals together. We go to, to, to houses and yes, we invite people over to share a bowl of soup, to share a broken bread together. But we don't only do that to befriend them and to feed them, but we also do that to to share the message of hope with them, to speak the Word of God with them, to evangelize them. Shared meals is an excellent context to share the gospel with others. Jesus appears, did this often. In fact, in Luke 15, in verse 2, he was criticized for eating and drinking with publicans and sinners. Also, Luke 7, the Son of Man is come eating and drinking. And you say, behold, a gluttonous man and a wine-bibber, a friend of publicans and sinners. They said he, he eats too often with strangers. One commentator said it like this, and I quote, in Luke's gospel, Jesus was either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming back from one. And I think we can be quite sure 
that when Jesus was together having fellowship over those mealtimes, he wasn't just talking about the casual stuff of the day. If you look at the pattern of that which he spoke of in his public ministry, he spoke about those things concerning himself, didn't he? He sets the example. He sets a high bar. And he does that as one whom we should follow his example as well. And so a faithful New Testament church evangelizes, breaks bread from house to house, visits from house to house with others. We are called to evangelize. We are called to worship regularly. We are called to care for one another. We are called to pray for one another. We are called to continue steadfastly in the apostles' teachings. We are called to uh, properly administer and to partake of the sacraments. And then the passage concludes with these well-known words, and the Lord added daily to the church such as should be saved. Varying ways that good commentators believe this should be translated, some translate it. Those who were being saved, God added daily, day by day, those who, who should be saved were being saved. But the point is that God was at work. And the point is that God was at work then, and He continues to be at work. And when He adds to His church, God adds to His church. He does His work. And He often is pleased to bless the labors of those faithful within His church for the advance and the cause of His gospel in that building process. And He does that, of course, for His name's sake, for Jesus' sake. And so, as we close this evening, dear congregation, I ask you, are you a faithful New Testament church? Are you a faithful New Testament church member? It's a practical question. It's also a very serious and a personal one. One day, when Jesus comes back, will you be among those who hear those awesome and wonderful words, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of thy Lord. I pray that you may be among that multitude that no man can number, that with your efforts, with God's help, of course, blessing it, that you would be faithful, that we would all be faithful, doing that which pleases Him, praying that He would bless the responsibility that we are called to engage Him, and that we would be faithful through this life and here his affirmation of faithfulness upon us, and that we may not have to hear those sobering words, depart from me, be cursed, for I have never known you. Go to everlasting darkness with the devil and all the fallen, but rather, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of thy Lord. May God bless it to be so for everyone. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, how good and how faithful Thou art, not only in Thy saving grace, but also in Thy guidance to us of what faithfulness looks like in a very practical way in the context of, of a New Testament church. Lord, we we all fail. We all fail on so many levels. And Lord, help us never to be discouraged, but 
We know from the book of Proverbs that when the righteous fail, they arise seven times, a full number of times, and, and get off and dust off, as it were, their clothes and look again to the heavens and continue onward and forward looking to Jesus. Help us to do that, O God, in faith and in trust and in full reliance. Dismiss us, we pray, uh, with thy favor and blessing. Go with us in our work, in our responsibility, in our school, in our travels, in our care of this week. Keep us and guard us and bring us back again next week here in the house of God to hear uh, through thy servant what the Spirit of God has to say to this assembly as well. Lord, may we be Advent people in the full sense of the word, looking to the appearance of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who one day will appear with clouds. All this we ask in His glorious name. Amen.